You are listening to the Evolution Exchange, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders here in Asia. I'm Sid, and I help connect companies with the best tech talent, and today I'm your host. In today's episode, we'll be talking about AI. And joining us are two industry leaders who play different but equally important roles in the use of AI in our industries. Our first guest is Sanjay Upal, the founder and CEO of Finbots.ai. Prior to this, he founded Straits Bridge, a company that advised financial institutions across Asia and the Middle East on their digital transformation journeys. Before starting his entrepreneurial ventures, he worked at companies like Standard Chartered and Hong Kong Bank in senior leadership positions. Our second guest is Aditya Shankar, the chief AI strategist at Data Robot. He helps companies and leaders understand AI, how it can help them, and the strategy, strategy needed to make it work across the entire organization. Prior to this, he has spent his entire career in consulting for analytics in companies such as BCG, PwC, and Accenture. He is also an adjunct faculty member at NUS, Singapore Poly, and other institutions. Before we go on, a quick disclaimer. All thoughts and views expressed by our speakers and myself are that of the individual and not that of the organizations. And with that, let's get started. So um, we'll start off with some quick introductions. Uh, Sanjay, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, thanks, Ed. I'm Sanjay Opal. I'm founder and CEO of Finbots AI. As uh, Sid mentioned, uh, my background is engineering and uh, master's in physics with an MBA. And I spent a considerable career uh, in financial services and banking in specific across multiple countries uh, in you know, predominantly Asia and the Middle East. I founded Finbots AI just over five years ago with a view that the environment was ready for adoption of AI, but also uh, there were legacy pro challenges in financial institutions that needed, uh, you know, a lot more different thinking than what we had done over the last few decades and AI presented that opportunity. Uh, yeah, Aditya here, I mean, uh, thanks for the generous introduction, Sid. I, I work for a company called Data Robot. Um, which, whose purpose is to make sure that AI is achievable at scale across enterprises and it, it, it is delivering uh, you know, tangible value. Uh, so um, in that regards, I work across some of our largest clients across the APAC region to make sure that they are adopting AI to the best of, the, best of its capabilities with the hope that they're using Data Robot to execute on that, on that plan. Yeah, I've been in Singapore for many, many years uh, in the data space for more than 15. Um, yeah, back then it was known as analytics, even before that, it was called as data warehousing and business intelligence. Uh, <laughs> there was nothing intelligent about it. It's all very intelligent now, I can tell you. Um, yeah, so I've been very happy to be here and uh, share my thoughts on how I see AI evolving, what are the challenges and what makes it very exciting these days. Fantastic. So today we're talking about AI, but specifically in business. I think everyone recently has been very intrigued by AI. Everyone's been playing around with ChatGPT. GPT-4 just came out. Um, I think everyone's recognizing the value, but I think businesses struggle to really utilize it in the best ways. Um, so Sanjay, what are your thoughts on the current state of AI? I think broadly, we are seeing some really exciting developments in the AI space, uh, but in the longer term journey, we're still in a fairly nascent stage, both in terms of the kind of solutions we're developing and the applications of AI, but equally in 
the understanding of AI and the concepts around AI and how you know that is harnessed, how does that apply to various problems uh, and you know business situations or personal situations. So we are beginning to see some really good successes on this and uh, equally I think every few weeks we do hear of some spectacular I would say blow-ups that happen which are a stark reminder of the need to harness it right AI and I think where we are right now we we are going in the right direction this enormous amount of learning and application that still needs to happen and it's also the stage where you know we, we are at the early stages of a marathon where uh, the person in, who's in the lead is going to continue to change and uh, the, the headlines over the last six eight months have demonstrated that uh, but it also won't be far from true to say the person who's going to lead AI in the world uh, may be an entity which is not even founded yet. <laughs> Could be founded by AI. <laughs> Could be that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think your, your question, uh, Sid, is probably, you know, can be separated into two parts, right? One is the current state of AI as a technology. And the second part is the current state of AI in enterprises, which are not primarily technology driven. Even with the second part, you can break it down into, a, into different components. Companies who are tech in nature, tech is their very core offering. You know, like Facebook, Meta, Google, you know, yeah. the Microsoft of the world. The other part of enterprises, tech is not their, tech's not what they sell, right? I mean, one can argue that every organization today is a tech, tech organization, but that's not what they sell. Banks, for example, telcos, for example, right? So. So let's take that one by one, right? So if you if you if you look at the current state of AI as a technology, AI is not something which is new, right? So you want to be able to trace its root back roots back to when it was first started. It was proposed as a term by the legendary Joe McCarthy, the scientist at MIT, also the the founder of the Lisp programming language back in the fifties. Neural network as a concept has been around since then. So AI as a technology itself is not drastically new. What's making it very, very interesting now is the is the, the ubiquity of computing and the storage which is available now, the rise of the hyperscalers, for example. Um, you know, the rise of projects such as OpenAI, which have made it very easy for you to research and, and sort of, uh, you know, propagate AI and its outputs at the, at the hands of consumers who have nothing to do with AI. That's the real game changer now. Right. I mean, for some of us who've been in this field, the rise of uh, extremely large but fairly simple neural network model with what's known as a feed-forward architecture. We have known for a fact for the past five years that these are going to eventually pass what's known as the Turing test. Think imitation game, for example, right? Which is basically it makes it indifferentiable from a human being or in tasks that a human being usually does for example writing language right so that that is has been pretty clear for us now suddenly all of this like as Sanjay mentioned there have been a few blowouts in the last few months they have what they've done is they put the the ability to access the outputs of these AI algorithms in the hands of you know people who have nothing to do with AI and now they're suddenly viewing this as a sort of a magical breakthrough moment and every person out there on the street is coming up with use cases of AI, is thinking of new and innovative ways of adopting it. 
that's a very, very, you know, interesting space that AI has entered now. So what, what has happened essentially is it's moved away from experimentation to now people are starting to think about commercialization. Right. So that this is, as my CEO currently puts it, it's the age of value-driven AI. We are past the hype phase, we are past the experimental phase of AI, and now we are really talking about commercialization. Look at the AI wars, which is going on between Microsoft and Google. It reminds you of the browser wars back in the day, which used to happen between, you know, Yahoo and Google. Yahoo and Google. Yeah, <laughs> at one point in time, Yahoo yeah. and Microsoft and Internet Explorer yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting now, we are in the age of AI wars because people are thinking about commercialization. So that's where the technology is right now. We've gone through the phase of experimentation, of rapid evolution, to we encountered the state of ubiquity of computing and storage, which gave us enormous abilities to sort of put all of those resources into development of large-scale AI models. And now we're thinking about commercialization. And now when I say we, it's not only people like Sanjay and me who are practitioners in AI, but it's every other person out on the street because of the accessibility that OpenAI has given them. Yeah. Now, the second part of your question is about, uh, you know, the enterprises adopting AI. Now, if you, again, broken down into two parts of the tech companies whose core offering is tech, Meta, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and such like, right? These companies, of course, are on a, on a different trajectory when it comes to AI because that's their core offering. The more accurate their AI models become, the better it is for them because of this fundamental structure of their business. The more advertising money they can, they can attract, for example, right? They can charge more for the same ad if they prove to the advertisers that they're targeting more accurately, right? So they are obviously at a different scale. But the real value is of AI is transforming companies whose core offering is not tech. Banks, for example, Sanjay is a very senior banker himself. I'm sure he will agree with me that there is a huge amount of opportunities in banks to really transform themselves yeah. using AI. But the challenge there is that large banks, large enterprises in general, have different parts of their organizations which are at different sort of levels of their AI mm -hmm. maturity. So there is a huge imbalance within organizations on what AI really means for them and what it can really do and do they have a proper strategy for AI, for example, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's my read mm. of the technology, the state of the technology and the state of the industry adopting the technology. Uh, but I'm sure we can drill into it uh, further as the conversation progresses. What do you think, Sanjay? I think, uh, you, know, you know, you're very right uh, in terms of the core technology companies as well as the non-tech companies that are seeing the opportunity to apply it to solve a lot of legacy problems. And that's where, you know, as I said, the understanding of AI and the principles of AI and application are still evolving. Uh, one of the things is that you rightly touched about it, which is the what has really enabled AI? Because some of these algorithms that we work with today is something I'd worked in my engineering days. Right? <laughs> right. I used to work with little kind of microcosm of these things. Single cell perceptrons, as they used to call them back in the day. In, in literally, out of uh, what I call the, uh, you know, more theoretically, yes. because that's the span of what we could do. Uh, you have to remember in those days, uh, running programs, which were fairly simple, you know, could take you up to six, seven hours. So forget about trying to run an algorithm. Uh, but I think we've moved a lot since then. Today, the challenge really is uh, 
in you know when we were developing a product for example uh, and what we were trying to do is say this is how things have been done for the last 25 30 years now how do i make them more efficient using ai and what i realized is we had very limited success mm. so i said okay let's assume i don't know how this problem is solved how would i solve it now that i have this new set of tools and that became something very very different so you know when you talk about large organizations and can benefit and apply AI, I think there's an enormous change in the way you think about that problem itself. True. Because the way you solve it traditionally is not the way you necessarily solve it by using AI. Mm. And uh, so you're not just expecting somebody to understand how AI is applied, but also how do I use that to solve this problem completely differently to yeah. how I've handled it before. True. And uh, you know, that's something you come across quite often. I think it's almost like, you know, if you were, uh, I have a degree in physics, right? So I, I, I sort of compare the, the AI world to what, what my core degree was. Mm -hmm. It's almost the difference between classical physics and quantum physics, right? The classical way is the old school rule-based way yeah. of, you know, rule-based plus statistical way of, say, doing credit scoring, for yeah. example, right? Which you are very, very familiar with. And the classical, that's the classical yeah. way. The quantum way is the AI way. And the key differences there are quite profound, actually. The classical way is driven by hypotheses. What are your rules? Your rules are based mm -hmm. are basically hypothesis, right? You're saying if a guy is unmarried, if he's if he earns say thirty thousand dollars a year and he's look, looking for a loan of fifty thousand dollars, he's most likely to default. That's a rule-based scenario. It's completely hypothesis-based. Mm -hmm. Your hypothesis is that that particular set of characteristics defines a probability probably probable defaulter of loans. Right? What if that hypothesis is wrong? Then your entire set of controls is wrong. The quantum way or the AI way is basically trying to derive that hypothesis from the data itself. Right? So you use the data to tell you or inform you of those rules. Therefore, you have very little chance of your hypothesis to go wrong and you automatically breach that accuracy threshold that, that you have never been able to do. No, that's a really great point. Uh, so just taking the credit scoring example. So people are used to tweaking certain elements in that maths, right? Because the hypothesis change, somebody comes and you come and you've got a different view of the world, you've got a different view of the world. And so when we say, this is how the model will be developed in terms of deriving that information. It's like, I know it's derived, but can I still tweak that? And it's not enough, right? You shouldn't. Uh, because that's just going to break the entire process down of the outcome of that model and uh, takes it off to a very, very different tangent. But, you know, exactly to that point, thinking of this is how I solved that problem before, you can still do it right now, but it has to be done very, very differently. Yes. You know, and, and I think that's the exciting part about AI uh, because as people learn more about how to apply it, the avenues of problems that you get solved will just explode. Yeah. And you think about it, right? The, the quantum world, which is the AI world, mm. right? It, it gives you a chance to truly achieve automation, right? It is obviously increasing your accuracy. Uh, so you're making better decisions, which is more, more accurate predictions, more accurate decisions. Of course, there is many details in between that from prediction to decision, which we can touch upon, but it automatically means that you're making better decisions. But you're also having capability to automate. You now have capabilities to put straight through processing pipelines in place in which your predictions can generate an automated decision 
which can automatically result in an action that an organization can take. Take the example of credit scoring again, right? You have developed a highly accurate, highly explainable, transparent model, which you know is, a, a, you know, can satisfy any amount of scrutiny. You're satisfied with the performance of it, it's highly accurate. You put that into production, is driving a straight through processing pipeline. Because it is accurate, you can now increase your financial inclusion net mm. many fold without assuming a proportionately large amount of risk. Because it's a straight through processing pipeline, which is able to automatically approve or reject a loan based on, on customer characteristics automatically. This is the kind of scale mm. that AI can give you and transformative capability that AI can have. Yep. So I guess, you know, that that's a huge opportunity that we have here with AI. So guys, tell me if I'm talking too much. No, this is my favorite topic. I mean, uh, yeah, we can go on for a bit of Yeah. Don't include that in the podcast, <laughs> which I'm saying. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's the opportunity that we have. But what have you seen are the biggest challenges that you face, I guess, um, Consulting these companies, right? What have been the major blockers in terms of the adoption? Um, yeah, I think uh, let's not call it blockers. Let's call it a unique challenge to solve, right? I think I think that's the way we should put it. I think what happens again if you go back to the to the construct of companies who are driven by tech or whose core offering is tech versus companies whose core offering is traditionally not tech. Uh, you know, I think the com- companies whose core offering is traditionally not tech, um, in my opinion, I think it, we, they would do well to have, a, have an enterprise definition of what AI really is at the very highest level, right? So at the level at which Sanjay sits, for example, like, you know, board level, a board of a large enterprise should have a very clear understanding of what AI is and what AI is not, more importantly. And that should cascade downwards from the CEO's office of what is an AI, what's AI, what does AI mean for me, down to each individual lines of business. That then means that you should have a proper AI strategy, right? Which is translated into a roadmap of use cases across the different levels of organization based on the different levels of organization's uh, maturity, AI maturity or AI readiness, as we call it, right? And that is first of all critical. The second thing is you should have an AI-enabled workforce, right? You should have a tiered enablement program, which is across, runs across the organization from the executive level, from the board level, it's a different definition of AI, to the middle management who needs to only know how to manage AI programs. The, the, the executives need to know how to spot an AI opportunity, how to fund it, and how to measure the ROI, right? That's what the executives need to know, right? A middle, middle management needs to know how to run an AI program. The ground level needs to know how to execute. That's a tiered enablement program. We should have an AI-enabled workforce. And then, you know, thirdly, what you need is a good technology stack, which, uh, you know, gives you the ability to have rapid experimentation, but also to manage the the AI workload at production scale. You have thousands of models, Mm. you need to have a single pane of glass in which you can manage and monitor all of them across. 
And then you need to have organizational structures in place which allow you to collaborate, to rapidly experiment, fail fast, succeed quicker hopefully and get to value faster. So this, these are some of the characteristics you need to sort of, you know, solve for if you want to have a, a yeah. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think some of these layers are still being put in place or not there altogether. Last year, I was invited to speak uh, at the lab call for part of a FinTech festival at one of the global banks. And the question was, what does it take for a hundred plus year old bank to adopt innovation? And they were pretty straight up. You know, you look at these FinTechs, you look at some of these entities, they're able to get onto that journey a lot faster. Why aren't we able to do the same? Good question. Yeah. And I said, look, I've spent my entire career working with large banks. So I think, uh, and, and I deal with a lot of them today. There, there are a few things that are different about the, if you want to just take a fintech world and you know, a fintech can run in the financial services space and you know, our legacy bank. I said typically in those environments, the CEO uh, would probably have a coding background and will have a very keen understanding of how problems are solved and using these technologies. And we'll you know, be able to sit down and draw with the solution. Uh, whereas the way we run legacy banks is about direction, control, guidance, mm. but not necessarily problem solving at the highest level. The problem solving is delegated downwards. The problem identification happens, but that goes down. I said the second thing is the, you, you touched upon that, which is fail fast, right? Is there an appetite to fail fast? or fail at all, right? And be able to contain the failure and live with it. And that's something that culturally doesn't come to bankers because we are always risk averse and every crisis has made us even worse. But <laughs> there are ways to contain those risks and be able to experiment intelligently. The third thing is the, the innovation is not about organization and structures necessarily. You do need that to enable, but the innovation is flying yeah, right between your ears. Yeah. And you have to change the way you think because you're talking about going into a completely new realm. And it is vital that you start on that journey. And as I said, I did my career in large banks, and I know it's easier said than done. Yeah, right. Uh, I often get asked by uh, people, look, if you guys can do create solutions like this, the other tech firms, fintechs creating all this, how come these large organizations with enormous resources at their disposal can't do it? And as, and I got asked that same question even at that forum. I said, uh, number one, large means complex, which means competing priorities. Uh, large also means interest groups and therefore yeah, with yeah. a certain level of politics. And that for, uh, for a minute. And the third thing is so the risk-reward is skewed towards risk. If you did something spectacular, you've bought yourself one year of fame. If you got something wrong, it's a career-limiting move that people will never forget. So I think, the, you know, just culturally, the environments aren't tuned for that. 
And that's why, you know, that, that's something that organizations need to think differently. My favorite example there is uh, an interview Steve Jobs gave many years ago, where he said, I mean, they were already amongst the more top few, mm. most valuable companies in the world. He said, how many committees do you think run Apple? Oh, yeah. And he said, the answer is zero because there are people who are responsible for each area, they're able to pull the resources that they need to enable what they're meant to deliver, and that is it. There are no committee decisions. There's somebody who's head of engineering, there's somebody who's head of marketing, somebody in distribution, somebody who's design, and that's what they're meant to deliver. So, and, and you see that when you create those kind of environments, you do encourage innovation, but you also lose, allow and leave room for failure, which is really an important part of innovation. That's true. I think also this politics is a very real thing, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, absolutely. Oh, I, Thanks I for bringing that up. It's so real, right? And the more revolutionary and transformative the technologies that you're dealing with, the more politics you will encounter because it has the ability to fundamentally change all your business processes. Now, I was reading an article in Harvard Business Review, which was posted on LinkedIn by one of my very good friends, Tom Davenport, who's a very celebrated AI professor in his own right, which says now business process re-engineering has a fundamentally new meaning now. You know, we've always talked about business process mm. re but now it's back to the fore, right? We used to think, oh, BPR is something which is old and yep. gone and dusted. But now it is more important now because AI has brought that to the fore with a completely new meaning. Now, if if you are fundamentally changing your business processes, people who are you know, you know, entrenched and very, very used to a certain way of working and fundamentally averse to change, they're only the, fun, the first reaction would be to protest it, to oppose it, make use of their existing networks, as India alluded to within the organization, to oppose that change. So it automatically becomes political. You have diverse opinions, and you know that's a big roadblock to democratizing the air. And uh, you know the stigma of failure emboldens that. Uh, oh, I told you this was going to fail. What you need I told you so. Uh, you know, and what you need is exactly what you mentioned, which is somebody at the top saying, yeah, we learned something new. Let's move on. Yeah. Rather than say, oh, you're exactly. right, we failed. Can we just put this to a stop, right? And I think that's the remarkable change you need in many organizations. That's why to be truly AI-driven, you need to have that mandate from the very top of the organization. Think about Piyush Gupta and what he did with DBS. That mandate has to mm. be coming from that level of the organization saying I'm okay to deal with failure as long as I'm seeing rapid experimentation, an intent in the right direction and everyone pushing together in the same direction. You know? So eventually you'll fail fast, succeed faster and you reach the goal of becoming an AI driven organization where most decisions or every decision is an AI driven decision. Amazing. So I guess the next part of the equation is making sure that companies know how to use it properly. And that means using it responsibly and ethically. I think this is a big topic. It's very complicated. Um, and I think everyone is still trying to figure it out realistically. Um, so what are your thoughts on, I guess, responsible AI and how would you go about enforcing it? Uh, that's, that's a great point. Uh, when I started looking at the application of AI closely, this is over five years ago, 
one of the thoughts that I had as I kept going deeper into it is trying to find an analogy or a similarity with something else in that environment, which I could equate AI with. And the closest thing I can think of is nuclear energy, right? The quantum physics again? It's quantum (laughs) physics again. Uh, Don't control it because then it will render it useless. But what you want to do it is, you know, guard it, right? And guarding means that you you want that nuclear energy to light up the city and not blow it up. AI has similar risks in it. And very high profile AI failures by both some of the big tech that you mentioned, the big financialists and other institutions that we know of, have been publicly seen and that highlights that despite all the resources that are available to these entities they're still not they were still not able to harness ai to get the right outcomes necessarily so a new financial institution launched and this is well documented which is uh, the business you know goldman sachs and apple put together they used ai for hiring Till it figured that there were enormous biases in those algorithms, and they rightfully always put that to a stop. But you have to imagine, you're like, these are two of the best names we know in the, their respective industries with massive resources available to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing, if you look at more recently, was Galactica by Meta, right? Ran into problems again. Uh, you look at BART that Google launched similarly. And this is a realization as an industry we have is that with more power comes more responsibility. And going back to the principles of fairness, ethics, explainability, etc., become really, really paramount because you could rush into it. I could get a data set, throw in an algorithm, bring out something and say, that's the model and then we are done. But is it fair, you know, does it meet the ethical requirements of a society? Is it transparent enough for people to know what they're getting into are really, really important pieces. The advantage I had when I was still grappling with this early on was in 2018, MAS came out with the draft framework for Veritas, the Veritas draft framework. And I went through that and it was really, really powerful and caught all these nuances really well. It was a draft framework, but you know, if you went go, went through even that version, you knew it was almost like 85-90% there. What we did was in designing our solution, which we know was an application of AI that organizations would use for some of their credit scoring, uh, we made that literally a foundation for a product, which meant enormous more effort, right? So it took us a lot longer, a lot more investments went in there. And this is something we've watched and guarded very closely. And I think we've got to a point where we are very, very confident about the outcomes we have. But in our R&D, this is something we watch every day. And I would encourage that anybody who's using AI, who's using AI-powered tools, actually demand those elements in there. Demand that you demonstrate the fairness of these. Or how do I ensure that fairness is built into all the client because otherwise you are likely to have enormous failures uh, which could at time 
you know, and that has happened in recent past, you know, cost real lives, right? It's not just a theoretical loss anymore. Right? So, you know, I, it is still very paramount. And what's greatest that is being recognized today is something absolutely vital to using AI. We don't have enough governance around AI in this today. There are no rules and standards. You have rules and standards on use of nuclear energy. You don't have anything on AI. Uh, you don't have anything about, well, you know, it's like saying if a nuclear reaction went wrong, whose fault is it, <laughs> right? If an AI goes wrong, who's at fault, right? And that's a question that keeps coming up every time. Uh, there are frameworks that are gradually coming around, but till those are mature enough, uh, it becomes uh, important for the users to assume that responsibility. Oh, absolutely agreed. I mean, I think the feat is a is a great step in the right direction. I think you know the fairness, ethics, accountability, and transparency are sort of constituent building blocks of uh, responsible AI. I think it's a very good step in the right direction. Uh, it is very comprehensive, mm. right? But one, I think what one must realize is that the AI model in itself is only part of the constituent of responsible AI. Mm. Right? Responsibility, governance, uh, trust, um, is engendered across the process of building an AI model from data acquisition to data prep preparation, feature engineering, building of the model till it's being put into production and how it is monitored post-production, right? That is the whole life of the model is under scrutiny when you're talking about uh, the responsible use of AI because a failure in any of the steps mm. can result in an unintended consequence. And that's just one part of it. That's the tech part of it, mm. right? You need to be making sure that the purpose that that AI is solving is, a, is, is ethical, it's known, and there's a wider consensus on that purpose for that sol solving that AI, right? There is no, there is no obvious um, group of people who is standing to be disadvantaged because of the output of the AI algorithm, for example, right? There is proper disclosures in place of what may happen with this, with this particular AI algorithm. Different scenarios have been modeled based on extreme values that this, this AI algorithm can generate and the consequences associated with those values, for example. So, yeah, feet is a great step in the right direction, but one must always remember that AI is a multi-dimensional subject, right? It's not just, just the model itself is one small part, it's not mm. one small cog in the wheel of a, of a larger beast that you're tackling, particularly practical, you know, practical AI, which is every organization's dream to do, like AI, which is practically valuable. That is, the model itself is a small cog in the wheel. So one must, at certain times, step back and take a look at the woods uh, and not the tree itself uh, yeah. when looking at responsibility. Yeah. So I think we all agree here that AI is not simple. But I think one of the things that organization needs is to build a team with people who know how to translate 
technical nuances of AI into business cases. Um, that's probably one of the most challenging areas to hire. Um, speaking to a lot of people that someone who can sit in between business and technical have enough of understanding of each to actually translate those resource, um, requirements, right? Um, I guess for each of you, when you build your teams or you hire, um, especially in the data science side, you know, what do you look out for? What skills do you look out for? And um, how do you test for these, you know, when you actually do the interviews? Well, that, that's a great question because this is something we are continuously doing. We are hiring people uh, into our data science team, very key to our solution and what we're doing as a company. In our typical experience, what we find is when we identify as a job is uh, a typical ratio of 100 CVs translating into one offer. And that's been the case every time. And the reason for that is in terms of people's understanding of what data science really means. And it's about, as you mentioned, it's about understanding the data and how it applies to a certain context. And then understanding the science of how to use it. Right. Uh, it's not a one size fits all. Or it's not, well, I did this course which told me in these five problems, these are the five algorithms to use, right? Uh, what, where, how, understanding the difference. Uh, a good data scientist has a really difficult task. They need to be a near master of the domain and definitely a master at maths. The shortcut of saying, well, I know how these libraries work and which has which algorithm and I just, you know, flush the data through that and get some magic happening is, uh, it is a very simplistic view of the world. So when we are doing the selection, a lot of our selection is around actually determining the understanding of the principles and the why of it. Does the person understand that adequately? The domain aspect is something which is very desirable and you know if the person also has that that's great but being a very good data scientist is very important because uh, these are the people who are continuously learning right the way we solve problems today compared to how we did 18 months ago, 36 months ago is quite different, right? Not, uh, it's not well, I've created this solution today and it's done and it can run like this for the next 10 years. No, it doesn't, you know? And uh, so there is a need to be able to identify the, the learning thought, you know, process this individual has. Uh, how they evolved as an individual, whether the experience is three years or ten years, right? What did they start with? How did they evolve? How did they find those points of inflection in their learning journey? How have they learned to apply what they know in the context of solving problems? We even have our own proprietary case studies. So we realized 
very early on that uh, there are a lot of case studies available on the web and most of the organizations are using that. Uh, so if you're a candidate, you'll get, you can download the full library of questions and answers book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what we have is our own set of case studies. And, uh, you know, our CTO and the team are constantly updating it. So if somebody got interviewed in January and they were to tell somebody, well, this is what I did with the case study, I can assure you the person who's interviewed now is going through a very different case study. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it is, I think, an amazing field where the opportunities are boundless at this point in time. But it's also a great leveler. We are finding places where somebody with three years experience has scored way better than somebody with 10. So the number of years do not matter because a lot of what we are learning and applying is probably not longer than a few years ago anyway. Right? And if somebody said I've done this for 10 years, but they kind of stopped or slowed down the learning four years ago, they already kind of falling behind. So I think it's a it's a really interesting place and a great source of learning for us when we hire people there. Yeah, I think you know fundamentally agree with you, uh, Sanjay. Right? I think the way I look at it is like AI from a practitioner's point of view, an AI professional or a data science professional to be a very very good one, you need to have three high level skills. Right? You need to have a very very good understanding of maths. Mathematics, you need to have a very, very good understanding of computer science, and you need to have a very, very good understanding of business. We're not talking about academic research here, the practically yeah. applicable data science skills, right? These three combinations are very, very important. It's very rare to find a very a candidate which has a very high degree of skill in all of these three. Right? So it's mostly two out of three you'll find, you know, where more often rather than not. Right, so, well, you know, I think as the AI field evolves, the ability of a data scientist to know about mathematics and computer science, the dependency on that will continue to decrease, right? Think about this. You, we have all used, in, math, in mathematics, in a mathematical field, you've used optimizers, right? Mm. You run a, run a mathematical optimizer and that can do the optimization for you. When was the last time you actually went in and coded an optimizer yourself? You didn't, right? Because the, the, there is a software which is doing a, a mathematical optimization for you. You just trust the results of this. So the ability for a, but the ability for a guy to set up the right optimization problem with the right constraints is very, very important. So as the field of AI evolves, I think our dependence on highly sophisticated mathematicians or computer scientists in organizations and enterprises uh, to hire them as data scientists will continue to sort of decrease in my opinion. And the, we will continue to see uh, more and more demand for people who can spot an opportunity in the business, which AI can really improve or really enhance, convert that into an, into a prob into an AI problem, so reframe that into an AI problem and dig into its constituents' requirements. That will be a very, very important skill to continue doing. Fantastic. So to close out this podcast, right, I think 
we'll get each of your takes on I guess where we are in the journey right now and then where do we go from here uh, you know Sanjay would you like to kick us off as I said in the beginning uh, I still think we are in the early stage where, so if this is a a full 26 mile marathon uh, we are somewhere in the first or the second mile of it the applications of AI in a way we are truly harnessing its ability to improve lives everywhere the acceptance and understanding of you know how this benefits us how and where it should be applied and where it should not is still something we are working with certain use cases and some you know great success stories to give us that confidence but I still think it's in the early stages. It's uh, it will be some time before you see the maturity come to a level where we are all comfortable with the concept of using AI. Uh, if you remember when automobiles started, there was a rule which said that if you're driving a car, there has to be this guy in front carrying a light, so to warn off people just in case they accidentally get crushed before this vehicle. Uh, but that's how the process of, you know, automobiles started and they replaced these false carriages. And it felt like this is as good as it gets. You know, of course, something that's motorized and it's going. Uh, you know, when computers move from punch cards, where you punch the cards and give them to a computer center and collected your printouts in the evening to see whether your code was okay, when that got replaced by these big green screen CRTs, where you could run the code and see the outcome instantaneously, it looked like <laughs> this is as good as it gets. Uh, I think we've seen some amazing achievements in AI, but I still think it's somewhere in that stage of the green uh, screen cathode ray <laughs> monitor, where you could move it from morning to evening running a computer program to something where the code, code and amend the code instantaneously, but there's a long way to go. Agreed. I think I think particularly for large enterprises whose code offering is not tech, I think there's a there's a long way for them. There's a lot of opportunities. I would rather say for them to you know make use of AI. I think that's that's true. But having said that, I think we are definitely moving away from an experimental phase of AI into a commercialization phase in which people look people are looking for practically applicable AI solutions which can generate real value. I mean, whether that is dollar value or societal value or any other value, value is all about perception or how you perceive it. Right? So that is definitely a phase that we are in. I think more technically speaking, uh, you know, like we've always known that extremely large neural networks, rather simple ones with a very simple feedforward architecture can, can pass the Turing test. We're seeing it right now. I think that's a very exciting space to be. I think that will continue to improve. The question that we need to ask ourselves is how much, how much investment does has to go in into that improvement, right? Because I mean, Moore's law is very famous. You're saying that you know the computing doubles every roughly eighteen months. In this phase, how much investment do you need to continue to make till it reaches a state in which it's not really that valuable? The ROI is not valuable. I think that's the key question that we need to ask ourselves. 
we are definitely seeing a move towards what's known as artificial general intelligence hmm. right which is essentially uh, ai which is applicable generally to a lot of lot of topics like you know that's that's artificial general intelligence i think we are moving towards that but at the same time i think we will start to like have highly specialized solutions uh which ai can solve very very well i think about like chat gpt for example is a large language model which is very good at predicting the next best word that's all it is doing it's predicting the next best word right it's got no degree of confidence in the accuracy of that prediction in my opinion mm. that degree of confidence will start to come eventually and what will happen is we will do start to have ontologies specially created in highly specialized domains for example healthcare clinical trials for example uh in the telco industry or in the banking industry where ontologies and the words and the jargons that are used are very different you will start to have uh, a chat gpt for healthcare a chat gpt for banking a chat gpt for telco emerge which is not general but highly accurate in what it is meant to do which is to solve telco or banking or or healthcare related problems So yeah I mean I think we are in a very very exciting phase of AI right now the there is a shift that we are seeing from experimentation to yeah. uh, commercialization and uh, from specific to general intelligence to AI passing the Turing test which is very fascinating to becoming highly accurate in a one specialized field fantastic so you know I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast i think it's been really good insightful uh and i think your perspectives you know really uh would resonate with a lot of our audience um so let once again appreciate you coming down for the podcast today and you know to our listeners stay tuned for more and we'll see you on the next one <laughs>